Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, as we say around here, and a time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe, those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I am indeed Eldon Taylor, at least I hope so, and I think my wife does too, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, my partner Ravinder is here in the studio with me. So, Ravinder, say hello to everyone. Well, hello, everyone, and I am most certainly glad that you are Eldon Taylor. That would be rather scary if uh, robots had become that that lifelike. Um, yeah, it's good to have you all with us. Um to learn more about the show, you can visit our website, that is provocativeenlightenment.com, and we have about 15 years' worth of archives there, so plenty of listening material there for whenever you're bored or whenever you want to stretch those brain muscles. The more you stretch them, um, the younger and sharper you will remain. Um, and then we've also got the Facebook page, so just do a search for Provocative Enlightenment Radio um, Facebook. Any important information given out on the air, I will uh, post up on that Facebook page. So any orals or any additional links that the uh, guest provides will get posted right there. And if you're listening to this show in an archive or through some other media, uh, you can listen live by just simply going to KTNW kknw.com and click on that link that is listen live we like to have you listening live because we like to have you join in the conversations and we're got a number of guests coming up where we're going to be taking your phone calls so please remember that listen live at kknw.com all right in this week's spotlight i wish to further our discussion from last week's show regarding brain mind Many people think of the brain-mind as a matter of emergent properties. That is, the parts of the brain act as greater than the whole, and in this way, mind or consciousness arises. In other words, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Emergence is basically part of system theory. Emergence theory is used to explain how many things in nature, ranging from the activity of ants to the emergent phenomena and materials such as atoms. Quoting Sciencing.com, human consciousness is often called an emergent property of the human brain. Like the ants that make up a colony, no single neuron holds complex information like self-awareness, hope, or pride. Nonetheless, the sum of all neurons in the nervous system generate complex human emotions like fear and joy, none of which can be attributed to a single neuron. Close quote. Now, as we've heard several times recently on this show, there are many other theories that supposedly account for mine, such as panpsychism. But none of the existing theories account for the hard problem in consciousness, 
David Chalmers asked the question this way. How does the water of the brain turn into the wine of consciousness? In other words, the hard problem of consciousness is the problem explaining the relationship between physical phenomena, such as brain processes and experiences, i.e., phenomenal consciousness or mental states, events with phenomenal qualities or qualia. Why are physical processes ever accompanied by experience? And why does a given physical process generate the specific experience it does? Why an experience of red rather than green? As an example. For years, many believed in the tabula rasa, or blank slate model of mind, offered by Aristotle and made famous among philosophers by John Locke. We are born with a blank mind that fills in as a matter of learning, experience, environment, etc., they say. However, this model fails to answer how it is that there are many things that we know without ever learning such. An example is, how do we know that there's no such thing as a number too large to add one to? It also fails miserably when we think of the acquired savant. The best we have been able to do with matters such as the solvent is explain them in terms of awakened pathways in the brain. So this whole brain-mind issue somehow keeps asking for another, perhaps outside answer, an explanation that goes beyond the physical nature as we understand it. We might be inclined to think of a collective consciousness that we somehow participate in or some other individual explanation, such as a soul, past lives, and so forth. The question is, should we? I like to think of myself as a scientist, but I must admit that I am more than sympathetic to metaphysical approaches when it comes to understanding consciousness. How about you? That said, think on this. If our consciousness is emergent, is it possible that our God is emergent also? If so, does that make God any less real? Well, not unless our awareness of ourselves is also unreal. Now, that's an interesting thought in my mind. There you have it, Ravinder. What are your thoughts? What are my thoughts? That quote is brilliant. How does the water of the brain turn into the wine of consciousness? I just, I, I enjoy words. I like special quotes. I think, I think that's just a good one. Um, the type of thing that we should think about, but I don't know that we'll ever really know the answers for. For me, I've certainly been playing with the idea of God being an emergent property. So, mate. There's lots of argue, there's lots of discussions out there that don't have clean, neat answers. So this idea that God is always good, and when you look at the bad stuff that goes on the, in the world, that doesn't quite make sense. So that's when I started playing with the idea of God being an emergent property, um, because maybe, as I said, we are creating God in the image that we want, and that can sound so blasphemous. I hope people out there aren't insulted by what I say. I'm not trying to be offensive. Uh, 
I promise you. Um, it's just the way my mind works sometimes, trying to figure out answers that actually make sense rather than grabbing hold of the convenient ones. All right. <laughs> I'm not going to touch that. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our show featured Professor Massimo Pialucci, and we discussed his work and book, How to Be a Stoic. Martin wrote, I loved your conversation with the professor. Thank you for great programming. Martha wrote, oh, Martin and Martha, how about that? Martha wrote, that had to be one of your all-time best shows. You discussed so many important subjects. I would like to see you bring the professor back, pick his brain, and pick up the conversation where you left off. Well, Martha, I'm glad you feel that way. Professor Pialucci will join us again in May, so do stay tuned. You said something like that as well, Ravinder. I so did. I really enjoyed last week's interview. Oh, good. Moving on, Millie wrote, Earlier, I was feeling extremely stressed and anxious about various things, election, family illness, etc., and I played your Intertalk CD, Optimism Plus, just one time, and the results were amazing. Right away, I felt so much better. I've been playing it at night this week, and it has real healing effects. And Julia wrote, Intertalk has rewritten all the garbage program of my childhood and younger years. There are no words to describe how I feel now compared to how subhuman I used to feel. I can't thank you enough. Well, you just did, Julia. We like that, don't we, Ravinder? Yes, we do. In our world, that's what makes the world go round. <laughs> all right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but please keep your comments coming. We do sincerely appreciate your feedback. You can opine by sending me an email to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. Now to today's show, The Warrior's Meditation with author Richard Height. So let me tell you a little about today's guest. Richard L. Height is the founder of the Total Embodiment Method, which is an awareness training system designed to integrate meditation into one's daily life. Richard is the author of five best-selling titles, most notably, The Warrior's Meditation, the subject of today's show, as well as Unshakable Awareness and the Unbound Soul, and he is a master-level instructor of martial arts, meditation, and healing arts. Richard began formal martial arts training at age 12 and moved to Japan at the age of 24. During his 15 years in Japan, Richard was awarded master's licenses in four samurai arts, as well as a traditional healing art. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Mr. Richard Height. Thank you, Alden, for having me. Wonderful to be it's here. It's in, indeed a pleasure. I enjoyed your book. It's, it's as my wife would say, she's from England, chock-a-block chock <laughs> full of meditations, exercises, uh, science supporting a lot of your work. So we'll get into all of that, but we like to learn three things from our guests on this show, sir. What is a message? Who is the messenger? And, of course, how do we use it? To that end, please share with us what you're passionate about and why. I'm actually passionate, quite passionate about sort of what you talked about earlier in the exploration of consciousness, 
um, but more appropriately as it is, as it is experienced through the human body. And so all that I've done in my life has really been a, an exploration and hopefully an exposition of what consciousness is or how it expresses in the human body, what are the potentials um, and the various windows that it may express through in the human body. All right, flesh that out for us. You heard the spotlight. What are your thoughts? All right, so, um, well, first thing, understand that whatever it is I'm going to say is coming through a bit different lens than would be a typical meditation um, perspective. Uh, because the the type of training that I took part in was always done under a lot of pressure, so you had to learn to meditate under extreme pressure, which re, you know, like someone with a sword, <laughs> that kind of thing. And so the it requires a kind of calm depth of awareness in daily life or under a lot of pressure, and and that opens up a lot of avenues into exploration of what mind is, what consciousness is. Um, ultimately, you're asking, we, we may be asking a question that may be unanswerable, but I, I kind of divide the human experience of mind, consciousness, God, whatever. <laughs> someone someone um, brought God into the conversation. Um, in, in, in terms of almost layers, we have what we typically experience as, as what we describe as the self, and that is a what you described earlier as kind of an emergent phenomenon. What I mean by that is as we go deeper and deeper into a bodily awareness or meditation, that aspect of perception can disappear entirely. The sense of who you are, where you are in time can disappear entirely, the senses and all of that. But the most obvious thing is that our sense of identity, our sense of positionality, um, our history and that sort of thing starts to become less and less important. And ultimately, it can fade away to a perspective that is just, we'll say, what I'll call primary awareness, which is simply awareness of being itself. And I don't mean that in a mental sense, like being is like X. I don't mean it that way. I mean more like a felt sense of being, not an analysis of being. Do you see what I'm saying? I do, I do, I do. I, I, I've got to, I'm, I'm going to play a little bit devil's advocate here, but not too awful much. Uh, a lot of researchers, newer researchers, observing meditators, uh, have, have observed that the parietal lobe just basically shuts down for yes. accomplished meditators. And, of course, that's the part of the brain that locates us, that for yes. all intent and purposes gives rise to, you know, direction, location, etc. So mm -hmm. there are those who argue that that this loss of identity, that this immersion into something greater is simply a matter that that part of the brain that l generally locates you knows where you are. Maybe you have a headset or a microphone in front of you uh, sitting in a chair or whatever. That part is quiet, so quiet yes. that you've lost who you are. And that it, it is therefore just a physiological, natural reaction that is organistic in its nature. What say you to that? Sure, why not? Could be. Yeah, as I, as I said, I'm describing the experience of, of being human. Uh, exactly what the truth of being is may be beyond our capacity to isolate. 
but whether it's uh, whether if it's some abstract um, disembodied thing or it's in the body and it's organic to me is actually in a sense kind of rather irrelevant yeah well, and so what answer. I'm looking for is what I'm looking for as an experience as a human being is is sort of a holistic or contextual view of life and so what ends up happening is, is essentially the brain gets in a habit of always viewing in a sense through that parietal lobe the default mode network which creates our sense of self and all of that and and we get so certain that we are our story so certain uh, that we um, of, of our justifications for things that we do um, a lot of self-deception and we get so out of touch with that sense of beingness it's like it's like being uprooted it causes a lot of anxiety in the nervous system and that of course paints all of our interactions with life puts us in a, in, in a reactive state oftentimes assuming things that just simply aren't um, and so what what I'm trying to do here or what let's say TEM the total embodiment method really is about is finding a connection between the sense of self and what we'll say is that sense of being. So we still have, we still have memory of who, quote unquote, our, our life story. It's just not viewed as being ultimately true. It's it's almost like it becomes kind of transparent in a sense. You see what I'm saying? So we can I do. because if, okay. if if we go into almost let's say a meditation that is a renunciation of thought, emotion, the life experience, and the story. It, it's, it's almost like a rejection. of it's, it, it literally is a rejection of everything you, you know and love. So right? it, it, let me make sure I've got it right. What yeah. you're essentially saying is the experience is more important than the biological basis for which it originates. Well, you would have the experience whether or not you understood anything about biology. True. Right. So this is practical in daily life. Whether you understand anything about the biology, if you um, pay close attention and feel the body, you'll start to notice these layers of perception slowing off. And there's one layer that doesn't slow off. That's just felt being, I guess you could say. So we'll call that the foundation of our experience in life. It's, it's not a learned experience by definition means something that's learned. That felt being is not is the one thing that's not learned. But we'll call that like a substrate or foundation from which then learning stacks on, the sense of self stacks on. And what, what, I'm, what TEM is about, what total embodiment meditation is about, is, is actually an embrace of all of those layers and seeing them through that fun, foundational being that we, you might call it the witness, but it's fundamentally feeling or perception itself. We could say that's even that's inaccurate. That's, that's the most I can say about it and have a conversation. It really is by right. words. Yeah. Before we get into your book more fully, sure. let's get some extra clarity. Define mm -hmm. for us what you believe is the purpose of spirituality. Uh, well, that's a that's a that's almost like asking a question: What is God? So, spirit. The word spirituality can mean different things to very different people. Um, so, or to to almost anybody, hundred people in a world room, you ask them what spirituality is, and it it will mean something different to each of them. And so recently, I've kind of shied away from even using that word uh, because it tends to lead us, it leads us in a different direction. Uh, well, it leads us all in different directions. But what, uh, if I were to say what I'm describing in this process is more like just an awakening to what is and less about our story, less about self-absorption. Okay, so again, I, I just want to clarify here. Before we get into talking about specific forms of meditation, 
the meditation practices that you um, teach, uh, your mm-hmm. system, they're designed uh, not for spiritual purposes, but for pragmatic applications, uh, awareness, uh, health, uh, well-being. Have I got that right? That's right. So it's basically just it's just an exploration of what it is to be a human being through these various levels of perception. Now, some people would call that when they get down to that deeper level and they start to have this felt sense of oneness with all that is, they would call that spiritual. I mean, you could call it something else and it would still be the same thing. I mean, I, I guess I'm not too concerned about the terminology, uh, but what the, the foundation of what I'm teaching, what I suggest people do is just come into it with, with a desire to improve the quality of their life by working on the, the, the main instrument through which life it unfolds in our perception, which is our mind and body. Right. And so that's all. Yeah, it's very simple. Yeah, I was just going to say, Richard, there are a lot of people who resist meditation because of, uh, you know, their religiosity. Um, sure. And so I think it's important to delineate the fact that um, whatever the practice, your particular teaching could be just as secular as it is spiritual or religious. Yes. yes. Okay. The title to your book might arguably violate today's PC speech, sir. The warrior implies battle, fighting, violence, and, you know, for some, this form of ideation is opposite the intent we generally attach to meditation. So unpack for us. What do you mean by warrior? Yes, that's wonderful. Uh, actually, strangely, I got the I got the terminology the the term from from the Japanese word bu or it, that was that is found in bujitsu. So or uh, budoka. So what that bu means? And so, for example, bujitsu it means the art of war, an art of war. But if you actually look at the kanji within the kanji bu, which is would be we would associate with war, it actually shows like a spear or naginata. And the term, uh, and it shows another character, which means to stop. So in a sense, it actually means to stop the fight. So a true warrior isn't trying to create a fight. It's actually, it's learning the art of war in order to stop war from happening. Now, in all honesty, most of what we see and describe as warriors these days is the opposite of that. But that is the, um, what is the fundamental meaning of what, uh, a samurai perspective, for example, on what a warrior would be. All right. Let's just get to the meat of it then. Why should anybody be interested in meditation? I mean, I understand that, you know, if you have a cardiac issue, they're going to tell you to meditate or use self-hypnosis <laughs> uh, for reasons of blood pressure, etc. But, you know, yeah, here, let's assume, you know, you got the young guys in college or he just graduated, he's 25, 30 years of age, or young woman. Um, you know, meditation takes time. It, it's something, you know, you, you, you have to set off a regular period for. I mean, so, so why should they even care about meditation, Richard? Oh, no, that's a beautiful question. The first thing is the word should in there. I would say that they, they not necessarily should worry about it or consider it or take interest in it. But if they are interested in the exploration of it, uh, it can have a, a tremendous a number of benefits. It, it's like the, at least the way that, that, that TEM works. 
So TEM is done like you can we train to be able to enter into a state of meditation in an instant and to be able to be meditated in active daily life. So this isn't something that we we carve out a piece of time and create an ideal situation, light some candles, some background music, shut all the doors and windows and tell everybody to be behave themselves while we meditate for a half hour. That's not how we practice TEM. Instead, we actually practice under pressure in an ideal situations. Instead of judging life as being an ideal, we just accept whatever the moment brings, and that is our pathway to become aware and deeply within the body. Uh, but as to why anybody might want to take interest into uh, meditation, it's sort of like, let's imagine that we wanted to be a great musician, but we had a terrible or unclean musical instrument, uncared for, untuned musical instrument. No matter how skilled we are, that's not going to sound very good. Our life is a lot like that. Our body, our mind, that whatever that is, that construct is or emergent phenomena is when we tend to that when we find the balance within that and awareness within that it affects the quality of everything we think feel or do thereafter um, so strategically speaking it makes the most sense that that's something that we would give some attention to Beautifully said. All right. We have a break in front of us. So when we come back from the break, let's get into this uh, system that you have designed, uh, a different kind of meditation. We'll talk very specifically about it. We're speaking with Mr. Richard Hyde about his work and book, The Warrior's Meditation. You can learn more about our guest and his book by visiting richardhyde.com. Let me spell that for you. Richard, of course. H-A-I-G-H-T dot com. Said height, but spelled like it's um, H-A-I-G-H-T. Okay. Do please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra-prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to InnerTalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Richard Hyde about his work and book, The Warrior's Meditation. 
You can learn more about our guest in his book by visiting his website. That's Richard Height, H-A-I-G-H-T, the spelling on Height, richardhight.com. All right, every week we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some genuine meaning to them. Music psychology, as you know by now, is a hobby of mine and a field of research with practical relevance in many areas. Now, your chosen music, Richard, is the Brothers Reed, an Irish hymn. Please tell us, why is the music important to you? And more importantly, how does it inform us about who you are? Wonderful. Thank you for the question. First, before I do that, uh, people will go to richardhight.com and get lost. It's richardlhight.com. So that'll help to direct people to the correct site. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, let's you. see. So, yeah. Uh, so the Brothers Reed song, I, I heard it. Uh, actually, they were they were playing live in, in our area. And I, I heard it, this song the first time. And it was just, just jaw dropping uh, because it well describes the process of, we'll say, um, the process that occurs when someone follows what I describe as the awakening path. And so it, it begins with this concept of this person who's alone and and caught up in their ego, wanting to be remembered, as the song talks about, uh, holes in my socks and no pockets and holes in my socks, and 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 just in a kind of a miserable state. And it, it ends with, which we didn't get to hear the whole ending, where they're resting in the bottom of the ocean in silence, content. And that's really, it's a revelation of the process, as I described, of these layers of mind as we explore and go down deeper and deeper into, ultimately, the felt sense of being. Uh, so I just thought that was a really beautiful song. Um, I spoke with the artist and asked him what uh, what his motivation for writing it was. And he said he was just trying to empathize with people who, you know, maybe didn't, who, who were against God, the idea of God or that sort of thing. And so it was, a, of course, a different intention that he had than what I saw in the music, but I just found that it, it, it actually addressed the layers of, of mind quite well. So, yeah. Very interesting. Very creative. All right, let's, let's talk about your method of meditation. What do you call it? Why do you call it what you do? And uh, where's it come from? So the warrior's meditation in Japanese was originally called Shinkaido. Shinkaido my, my instructor, my martial arts instructor, is a samurai arts instructor in Japan named Osaki Shizen. Uh, he and I trained together for 15 years while I was living there. Or sorry, that's not, not correct. Eight years while I was living there, and then after, when I returned, I would go back to him. I trained with another teacher prior to him. But we had a collaboration going. He taught me the martial arts. I taught him meditation. And the two transformed both. The combination trans transformed both. And at the end, when he gave me the graduate certificate or the master's certificates in the arts that he trained, he, he gave me a name for the meditation that we had ultimately come up with through the collaboration, which was Shinkaido. And uh, Shin means heart, can mean heart, mind, or consciousness. Kai means open, and Do means way. Um, and so when I first came here, I was just calling it that. But, you know, Japanese word, people aren't going to understand it. You need to come up with another another way of describing it. I called it the observation meditation for some period of time, but although that's an accurate description of what's going on, we're observing what's going on within our experience, it really didn't, I don't think it had that captivating aspect to it. it no one really wondered anything about it. Um, and so ultimately, I felt that the warrior's meditation ended up capturing capturing the meaning of it a little bit better. So that's that's how that came about. Did I answer that question? 
So, yeah, that's good. So you call it TEM for Total Embodiment Method. And yeah. and how does that differ from just mindfulness? So what we're doing, is, well, there's several aspects. So we go through the senses. The basic warrior's meditation goes through the five senses. There's another meditation out there called the five sense meditation, which seems very similar. There's a fundamental difference between the two, though. Uh, so when we go through the senses, if we're if we're identifying the things which are sense, like I hear a bird and I hear a dog and I smell this or that, we're actually exercising the part of our brain. We're, we're bringing back the habit of constantly identifying stuff, which you'll notice if you you know driving down the road, your brain's just constantly thinking like a hamster wheel. Mm-hmm. So we change it up from the five senses meditation that's taught elsewhere where we're not identifying with the content of what is being perceived. And that helps to actually go deeper into the brain. And then there's a sixth element as well, which is proprioception. I call it spherical awareness. So you talked about um, the part of the brain that creates our sense of self and where we are located in time. The sense that that is is called proprioception. And where your body is in, in, in space, essentially, or relative to the objects around it. And what we're doing is we're working with that, um, that sense, so the sixth, that sixth sense quite a bit, so that you, the sense of you no longer stops firmly with your skin. It's almost like you become a part of your environment. Um, I believe that mindfulness as a, med- as, as a method has a similar aim, uh, although mindfulness has its roots in what we would call a renunciation practice or um, Buddhist meditation practices. But but I, I believe this, the aim is similar. All right. One of the first things that stopped me in your book had to do with some research all about the vagus nerve. What What is vagal breathing? So there are 12 cranial nerves, and there's one nerve that goes from your brainstem and it travels down through your body to the various organs, and it, it facilitates communication between the brain and the organs, and probably a lot more, nervous system, the the uh, immune system, and, and, and so much more, even the circulatory system. Um, and what vagal breathing is, is a way of breathing that very rapidly creates what we will describe as a vagal release, where suddenly our blood pressure might drop, uh, and and that what we described earlier is the uh, default mode network, part of the brain that creates your sense of self, it quiets very rapidly. And suddenly you find yourself in an embodied experience. You may feel your heartbeat throughout your body. You may become aware of things in the body that you previously were not aware of. So it's a, it's a rapid way of shifting the brainwave state from a, from a beta brainwave state, which is like thinking, sense of self, stress. Um, a doing mindset, that sort of thing, to a conscious, what I'll describe as a conscious alpha brainwave state. So to get a sense of what an alpha brainwave state is or an alpha wave is, if you watch TV, usually within about a minute of watching TV, your brain will go into an alpha brainwave state. But it's it's not conscious, which means your body's relaxed, you're in a rest and digest mode, but you're not aware of your body, you're not really you're not aware of the space around your body. So I won't call it a conscious state, but more like a subconscious state, just relaxed, not particularly aware. What vagal breathing does is takes us into what I will describe as a conscious or highly aware alpha brainwave state or deeper, could go to theta or delta, could go into gamma, but yeah. How do you go, go ahead, I don't mean to cut you off. Oh, no, I said, did that answer that question? 
Okay. Uh, how do you go about um, practicing vagal breathing then? So first thing is that there, depending on how powerful we do this vagal breathing method, it can be dangerous for anybody who has uh, certain heart disorders or even glaucoma because it creates a, a pressure in the in the torso and pressure on the heart. So we, something that we will give that warning ahead of time. Um, it's actually a warning I added recently to my books just to make sure that you know, nobody's doing anything that could be dangerous for them. But for the vast majority, vast, vast majority of people, this is a very, very healthy thing to do. Um, the most obvious way to do it is to just take a deep breath and hold it. Feel, feel the pressure in your chest. And hold it as long as you can, and then suddenly just let all that pressure drop and relax your body as deeply as possible. And what we'll notice, notice is that we suddenly become a lot more silent. Some of us may actually feel our heartbeats. Some of us may get near passing out when we do it because of the blood pressure drop is so much. It's good to do it while we're seated. Don't do it while you're driving. I hope nobody did that while they're driving. Should have, should have mentioned that ahead of time. <laughs> You'll notice that the breath softens afterwards. Eldon, did you feel anything? Did you take that breath? Did you feel anything? I did. I did. And I'm, I'm familiar with the practice. And of course, I read your book. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that interested me was uh, studies on the immune system that were associated with vagal breathing. Um, and the fact that it's not, you know, not that into the count of four, hold to the count of four, out to the count of four, rhythmic form of breathing that is typically taught in meditation classes. Yes. Yes. Uh, and there's a reason for that. Uh, when we're when we're putting it in too tight of a form, what's actually ha happening is we're accessing that beta brainwave thing, uh, state, that left brain thinking, measuring device that's actually preventing us from feeling and being aware within the body. So instead of saying you should hold it for 10 seconds and then release for five seconds and then, you know, all of that, which is stimulating the brainwave state, which we're are, is already stressing us out and, and suppressing our immune responses and, and various other things, um, or maybe amplifying immune responses, which can cause autonomic, uh, or, or which can cause um, disease, uh, we call it um, um, autoimmune disease disorders and that sort of thing. Instead, what we're doing is we're just going with feeling. So you take that breath in to the degree that it feels right or feels good. Fill up those lungs, enjoy it, feel it. Hold it for as long as you feel like it. Release it when you feel like it in the way that you would like, right? And that feels good. And when we do that, we're now, it's like we're drilling down in the consciousness of, of the human being down to that more fundamental or primary awareness I talked about, which is we can describe as being the fun foundation of feeling itself. And so the entire approach to meditation is just different from really everything else out there that I've seen. Yeah, now correct me if I'm wrong, Richard, but one of the juxtapositions that I see in your method to 
how, you know, most people teach meditation, transcendental meditation, the mindfulness techniques that are Buddhist and so forth, is that it takes an active role in teaching you awareness about your being, about your body. It's not about escape. It's not about, you know, I just go numb all over and stop thinking. I have to actively become aware of my physical being and incorporate it in the process. Have I got that right or wrong? That's right. That's right. All right. So tell me this, then, Richard. Why do math in your head before meditating? Oh, okay. So that was a, an experiment. It, it, the goal was to get into, for example, a vagal brain, brain uh, a, a, a alpha brainwave state through vagal breathing, for example, and then to juxtapose that with beta brainwave state. So you do some mathematical equations so that you can then get a feeling level difference between what is alpha brainwave state as it is felt in the body versus a beta brainwave state. Do a little long division, do a little math, and that will assure that you're in a beta brainwave state, which is that the state that most of us are trapped in for most of our lives. It's just constant thinking, constant goal orientation, constant doing. And so the, the, the mathematical equation thing, is that's really just to, to give people a felt experience of the difference between those brainwave states. I find that very interesting. I uh, share a little bit of a story with you. Uh, for years I, and years, I practiced criminalistics, and one of the things, one of the tools that I used was forensic hypnosis. Testified many times in court about that, but I had a client, a friend come to me, Sir Jeffrey Chambers Hughes, it's okay, I guess, to use his name, he's passed away now, um, who said he couldn't be hypnotized. There was just no way, he just couldn't believe in hypnosis, etc. And he was, he was... You know, if not a genius, uh, I would be fooled, okay? Uh, he had to be what we would think of as a, you know, a Mensa member or a strong candidate. And so when I started talking to me, to him, he told me about how logic and reason and ratio, rationalization and uh, ratiocination, I should say, etc., was so important to him. So I told him, I said, okay, well, we're just, we're going to do something different. You know, uh, we're not going to do hypnosis. We're going to do something I think of as hyper It's actually going to expand your consciousness, but you're going to have to work with me. And I gave him an equation and told him to plot it on a Cartesian coordinate system, solving for two unknowns in his mind while I continued to talk to his subconscious. He turned out to be one of the deepest subjects I'd ever had in hypnosis. <laughs> you know, it just, well, you, while you're working on something like that, it, you, you can get so deeply engrossed in that that you actually are altering your brainwave state all by your little lonesome. Yes. Right yes. or wrong? That's actually correct. Um, so the way that we approach, so we say, I bet I would suspect, and so this is, this is going to sound like I'm contradicting what I said just a minute ago, but I would suspect that some of the greatest mathematicians actually are doing their calculations from a deeper brainwave state, like the ones that really break breakthroughs. I um, totally agree brain. with that. Yeah. Um, but if the difference between that and seven times seven equals whatever, that's beta brainwaves. There's, there, there isn't an exploration going on. It's the felt exploration that's the key. 
And so when you engaged him in something that he actually was exploring, that can lead into that can lead into a meditative or conscious alpha or deeper state of of of, of brain. Yeah, brainwave. Okay, let's take on another subject inherent to your system. What is conscious tasting? Most of us are just, we just gorge down our food and don't really, um, don't really engage with it to the degree that it's possible to engage with it. So conscious tasting is just that. You're highly engaged with the process of mastication, with the process of the taste, not necessarily identifying, oh, that's, that's ginger and that's garlic and that's, you know, it's not necessarily that way, but, but the whole atmosphere within the mouth as well as all the flavors, and that gets the brain weight, that creates a strong vagal response, and then we might actually start noticing, it feels like you're tasting the molecules of the food. It's, it can be quite quite a beautiful experience, but it's just another way of, of activating that vagal response. So, uh, so how does becoming so aware of all your different senses, how does that uh, assist in uh, TEM meditation? So ultimately what TEM is about, uh, it was described in, in that Shinkaido uh, word that my Japanese teacher had come up, my martial arts teacher had come up with consciousness expanding or consciousness opening way. Most of the, what we describe as difficulties or suffering in our lives comes about as a result of having too myopic a view, not, not just intellectual myopic view, uh, but, but at a feeling level. And most of us think of, when we think of clarity, we think of mental clarity. What, what TEM is really about is a feeling level clarity, a felt sense of where your body is connected in the world, not just your, your how do I say this, not just your self-absorption. Mm-hmm. And so when we open up the senses in the way we do, it's all, a lot like stargazing. If you've ever stargazed and, and you wanted to see a dim star, if you try to focus on it, you find that you can't see it. Right. And so the way to see the dim stars is actually just to spread out your vision to see the entire sky. And then out of the corner of your vision, you'll start to notice the dim stars appear. Right. They've always been there. You just couldn't see them when you focused on them. Life is a lot like that. We're we're constantly taught in our society to focus, 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 concentrate, concentrate, concentrate more, 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 which is all about excluding information. And what TEM is doing is it's just providing a little balance to to that equation. We've, we've imbalanced ourselves through constant reading, constant focus, constant looking at things, constant defining, constant, constant thinking. And so TEM is just a sort of a, we'll say, a, a medicine, in, in a sense, to help give us greater context to our, our perceptions. So if I understand right, Richard, I could mm-hmm. use TEM basically doing i could be cooking in the kitchen i could be oh, yeah. taking a stroll i i could be sitting at my desk uh, working up a radio show uh and if i become if i use the techniques that you've spelled out in your book i potentially be, could become a 24-hour well at least i don't know about sleep but other than for sleep a full-time meditator Right or wrong? Well, yeah, we'll say a profoundly aware individual, like aware, aware even in at a subconscious level. Like what I mean is, you actually become felt a feeling level awareness of the content of the subconscious mind. It's a, it's quite a beautiful thing when it happens. Um, but yes, yes, to answer your question, it can be applied right. to and integrated into all activities and become the normal way of being. And it's a I much love- more. 
enjoyable. Go ahead. I don't mean to cut yeah. you off, Richard. Yeah. No, no worries. No, I was just going to say. Way of being. Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say, I love your system. I think, you know, it, it is a very healthy way for all of us to live. And if we all became more aware, totally aware, as opposed to automatic in so much of what we do, we think, and, and so forth, we, you know, the, the quality of our lives just completely change, as, as would, you know, many of the problems that we think we're dealing with just disappear. Tell me one more question. We're running out of time. Tell us about emotional bias and what you suggest we do in order to eliminate or obviate it in our lives. So emotional bias is, it can be positive or negative. And generally, for example, if someone tells us something that we really want to hear, then we just, you can, you can also notice this when someone just says your name, but it's like all of your attention just goes in that direction and something opens up. Uh, so, for example, uh, say somebody told you, uh, reinforced a belief that you already have. You suddenly, you know, you get, you're fully now engaged with this person and you start to, in a sense, like this person more than you would otherwise like them. Uh, but basically, it's not an honest perception. It's just they're, they're feeding your bias, <laughs> Right. In the same way, if there's a if there's information that comes in that it's opposed to the way you want to view the world or your belief systems, then it's a very strong likelihood that there will be emotional um, rejection of what is being said or some sort of perturbance, uh, a bias against what what is being right. explained to us or shared with us. But it that is happening with our senses every moment of every day. We're excluding certain information and incorporating other information based off of our previous experience. That's a necessary part of the biology of a human being. If you're going to take an aim at anything necessarily, you have to kind of be a little bit exclusive just to be able to line up down that path to, to move towards your aim. What TEM Richard, is doing is that, yeah. I have to stop you because we're running out of time, and I want you to give your website one more time because I gave it <laughs> wrong. Please, how can they get your book and, and your website? Yeah, sorry, thank you. So the book is called The Warrior's Meditation. It's available on Amazon or other bookstores, online bookstores, that sort of thing. And the website is richardlhight.com. It's H-A-I-G-H-T dot com. And um, thank you so much for having me on. Well, it's indeed my pleasure. The book, The Warrior's Meditation, is a great read. I highly recommend it. Go get a copy of it today. I want to thank you, Richard, for sharing your work and experience with us, sir. All right, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. We left you with a teaser. Go get the book, and you'll find out how to deal with emotional bias. All right, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.